there's one thing that will minimize the impact of all the good and godly things that, that God would want to do here. You know what that is? It's a three-letter word. S-I-N. Sin. That ugly three-letter word that is personified in Satan who loves to disguise, divide, and then destroy. That's how he always works. Augustine defined sin as love turned in on itself. It's an apt definition in light of what we're talking about this month. When we see ourselves as the center of everything, we place ourselves in that place, and suddenly we want to please ourselves at all costs without regard to God or others. My mind goes to Achan in Joshua 7. Don't turn there, but just recall the story with me. God was doing really good things in Israel's midst. They were on the brink of crossing over into the promised land. They had just occurred, uh, encountered their first victory. But he steals, he disobeys, and he thinks it's a personal matter only. He thinks, I can do this. And he hides the goods in his tent. What he doesn't know is that sin always ripples in its effect. And as it's discovered, and then he's punished, not only does it affect him, it affects his family, it affects the nation spiritually, it affects the nation militarily. And it wasn't just a personal, individual matter. He put his wants above all else, and it cost him and many others. You see, this is how sin always works. It always infects first, and then it affects later. And so, what is the root of those kinds of sins? What's at the root of this? Well, that's what I want to begin this year talking about. I want to spend four weeks exposing the sin underneath the sins. I want to shed some light on an underlying myth that lurks in the dark corners of everyone's life. That myth that gives rise to so many of the visible sins that we commit. I want to talk to you about the why of sin, which is underneath the what's of sin. And to do this, I want us to focus on nine verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They're the last nine verses of this chapter, so go ahead and turn there, would you? But they also are a concluding section to a larger grouping of topics in 1 Corinthians. In fact, I would suggest to you that it begins in about chapter 3 where Paul begins to list various sins in the Corinthian church. He starts with division. He goes to arrogance then sexual immorality, and then legal defrauding. A number of sins that are really struggling with individually and corporately. And he ends in 6.11 by saying, this is not the way that you should live anymore. He says, you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. This should no longer be your way of life. And then he says in verse 12, he begins by explaining why that's true. And his essential answer is this. That we no longer belong to ourselves. So sin is no longer our way of life because we don't belong to that way of life. We don't belong to that old master. We now belong to a new master. We belong to God. He lays this out in the final nine verses of chapter 6, which I think concludes this longer section about dealing with sin. And he gets to it and attacks the root of it. So what I want to do in this series is take a few minutes this week and just examine the entire nine verses for a little bit, just from an overview, uh, in an overview way. And then we'll look briefly at the first couple of three verses. And then we'll come back each week and we'll take apart more verses 
in these nine verses to help us understand the root of our sin and seeing and, and hopefully, hopefully it'll help us attack that better this year. So that in 2020, watch this, and, and hear this well, church. You can have a year where you actually sin less. Wouldn't that be nice? And there's nothing wrong with that. We're not calling for perfection. We're not thinking that we're, we're hot stuff. We're not saying that we have the power. But I'm not afraid to admit to you, I want to sin less. I want to hurt my wife less. I want to hurt my kids less. Don't you? I sin against my family at times. I do. I sin against you at times. I don't want to live that way. I want to sin less. Don't you? So let's attack this at its root and ask ourselves, what's causing us to sin? What is the sin underneath the sins? And I believe in these nine verses, Paul explains it to us very well. Let's read them together. Can we follow with me? Here's what our text for this month will say to us. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Notice that's in quotes, right? And, and what it is, is Paul is giving here some cultural excuses. He's kind of using their language and their current um, vernacular to kind of explain to us, here's how you're excusing and rationalizing your sin. He says, first of all, all things are lawful for me. That's what the culture would say. But God would say, not all things are helpful. Again, he repeats himself, all things are lawful for me. Notice the emphasis on the word me there. But Paul says, here's what God would have you know, that I'll not be dominated by anything. Here's another excuse from the culture. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But Paul would remind us that God will destroy both one and the other. You see, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexually immoral person, that person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now from 30,000 feet, there really are two prominent th threads running through these nine verses. The body's operation and the body's ownership. So let's again, let's just look at the nine verses from an from a overarching angle. And let's talk for a minute about these two things. The body's used about eight times, the word is. There's two or three other words that allude to the body. So you could safely say there are about ten references to the body in these nine verses. So it's a prominent theme, your physical, actual body and how you use it. And in fact, if you were to just read the text straightforward, which we did, you'll find that he talks a good bit about the wrong use of the body and even the wrong use of the body sexually. So truthfully, much of Paul's talk here is about wrong use of the body in a sexual manner. Now, lest you think Paul is saying that sin is only something that occurs 
when the physical body is used wrongly or in a sexual manner. He's not saying that only. He is saying, however, that our physical bodies are often the means of the final expression of our sin. And that's true for sexual sin as well. You see, sin starts in our hearts and minds, doesn't it? But it is ultimately revealed in our body. Sin begins with how we think, and it shows up in how we act. That's a bodily action that comes from a sinful desire, or the word the Bible uses is lust. So so Paul is not saying that sin is only a bodily or physical thing. But I would argue with you that he is at least saying sin is eventually a bodily thing. Now, where does this wrong kind of use come from? I think it comes from the second thread, the body's ownership. And as you read through this text, one of his main contrasts is saying saying to these Corinthians, you don't own your body, so you can't just use it any way you want to. God owns it. The wrong ultimate use of the body stems from a wrong initial understanding of who owns the body. In fact, Paul goes to explicit lengths and uses very blatant language to show that for the Christian, our body is not ours to use as we wish. We belong to someone else now that we are saved, church. We belong to the Lord. And in fact, we belong to Him in an intimate way. We belong to Him as one belongs to a spouse in a one flesh kind of way. So we do not have the right to use our body to sin in any way we wish. We're under new ownership. Our body is God's. Now, I hope that's not a new concept to you. I hope you're not thinking, well, I've never heard that. If you are, I want to assure you, this is not a new doctrine. We're not just thinking of something to bring to you. This is not a new discovery. In fact, this is actually the answer to the very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, a hundreds-of-year-old system of questions and answers that lays out doctrine. It's also the answer to the first question in the New City Catechism. The question is this. What is our only hope in life and death? You know what the answer is? From hundreds of years ago, even to now, that we belong, both body and soul, in life and death to God. So the church fathers, the early reformers, even current theologians understand this is a fundamental answer to the very first question we should be asking. What is our only hope in life and death? It's actually that you don't belong to yourself, that you belong to God. So when you see these two threads weaving themselves through these closing nine verses, understand this, Paul is dismantling, at least for the Christian for sure, and I think for all of us, he's dismantling physical autonomy as a spiritual right. He's deconstructing the idea that you have your own set of rights to your body. Now, He could not have been more clear than verse 19. Do you see it there? You are not your own. So so if there's an issue with uh, this principle, don't take it up with me, (laughs) all right? I'm just a delivery boy. It's very clear. You, we're not our own. We belong to God. So he's deconstructing. He's dismantling physical autonomy as some spiritual right we have. Now, I admit to you, this is... um, This really crashes against how we think as Americans and Westerners. This is hard medicine, but let's uh, swallow it. Because we're beginning to see the why behind the what. 
we begin to see the reason that we sin like we do. And what is that reason? It's because we think we own our bodies solely. That they're made for our satisfaction only. We think we're the master. We think we're in charge. That we consider ourselves, watch this, autonomous individuals. But that's a myth. You see, we love to think of ourselves as in the words of that final verse of the poem Invictus. You may not know it by that title, but you'll know these words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or sometimes you see yourself singing along with Frank Sinatra. I did it. Yeah, no. See, ultimately, scripturally speaking, we don't do it our way. And we're not the captain of our souls. For the Christian, God owns us. In fact, we sang it earlier. He bought our freedom. Can I say to you, why is that true? Because he didn't just buy you freedom and hand you a piece of paper that says, hey, now you're free. He actually bought you. And then he set you free. You were purchased at a price. So scripturally speaking, we are not our own masters. Plain and simple, we don't own our bodies. And when we think we do, we will end up sinning more, not less. Autonomy is a myth and a destructive one at that. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 14 in even a plainer way when he says this. Romans 14, 7 and 8. Jot that down and read it in your small group or with your family this week. He declares this very plainly. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I mean, Paul is a plain language kind of guy, isn't he? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are the Lord's. And this is not to say that Paul is arguing against and saying that we're not individuals. Listen very carefully here. He's not saying we don't have individual agency or capacity or that we're not individually responsible. Sure we are and sure we have that. All of us have the ability to make individual decisions, to live our life in the manner that suits um, how God has wired and made us. But that is precisely the point. We live this life in light of God's creation of us regeneration in us and his authority over us do you catch that as individuals with agency capacity and responsibility we still live this life as god has wired us and suited us knowing he has created us regenerated us and has authority over us so we know we're not our own even though we live it individually you see the issue is not individuality the issue is idolatry and what paul is arguing against here and trying to show the corinthians is they are idolatrous in thinking that they're their own master, that they belong only to themselves, that their end goal is always self-satisfaction and bodily pleasure. And so the big picture point of this closing section is this. When we see ourselves as autonomous from God, we will find ourselves sinning against God. That will be true for you in 2020. The more you see yourselves as autonomous from God, you will find yourself sinning against God. 
This type of autonomy, which is really just pride, is the root of all sin. That's why I've named in this series the myth of autonomy or the autonomy myth. Because if you and I as Christians think that we can do whatever we want, we own our bodies, it's our life, if we buy into this kind of American concept and mindset that we're our own man, we're self-made, we will find ourselves sinning against God more and more. You see, we're not autonomous. What we are, here's a new word for you, is we are bautonomous. That's a new word we're going to put in the First Family Dictionary, okay? You're going to hear this word throughout these four weeks. And I'll maintain to you uh, pretty passionately, this is the posture of every Christian, genuinely born-again person, is we are not autonomous. We are bautonomous. We are purchased with a price, and that price is the blood of Christ. So jot this word down. You won't find it in Webster's. You won't find it in the New American Dictionary. You'll find it right here, bautonomous. It means that we understand that we live our life as an individual under the ownership and authority of God. And this, this word really forms the basis for what I have developed as an overarching goal for this entire series. It's not a take-home truth per se. It's more like a, like a bullseye of a target. Like, where are we aiming this four-week series about understanding sin's deep root so that in 2020 we actually sin less and chase hard after God? I hope that we will live increasingly like a bautonomous people who serve at the pleasure of the one who purchased us. That you won't boast or glory in your autonomy. That you'll reject pride, but you will take great joy that you've actually been bought and purchased. I believe that when we truly grasp who rightfully owns us, only then will we begin to understand sin's deep root. When we understand who rightfully owns us, we'll start killing sin, not just managing it, not trying to hide it or disguise it. We'll then discover the deep joy of belonging to God, not ourselves. This is the essence of autonomy. And I submit to you that adopting this posture is the very first step in dealing with sin's deep root. Let go of owning your life. Be done with God as your co-pilot. He is the owner and pilot. He holds the helm. He's the master. Embrace autonomy. Reject autonomy. Now, with that as the overarching understanding of the nine verses, I want to just take a few more minutes and help you understand how God sees the body. Because if you're saying, Todd, if I'm going to use my body in 2020 to sin less, how does God then view my body? How should I use it? What, what's going on with my body? If I shouldn't see it as autonomous, but autonomous, what does that look like? And can you give me some applicational principles here? Let me just give you two more things. I'm going to show you from the first couple of three verses the wrong way to see your body and how it affects you. And I'm going to show you the right way to see your body and how it affects you. Just a few more minutes. So let's hang together. You can kind of root yourself back in verses 12, 13, and 14, because this is where we're going to see two things. We're going to see the body's false purpose based on the culture. And you're going to see how cultures never change. The expressions of their sin changes, but the root of it never changes. We're going to see the body's false purpose, and we're going to look at the body's true purpose. So first of all, let's understand the body's 
false purpose as laid out by God here in the first two or three verses. He uses these quotes from the culture, such as, all things are legal, legal for me, or the food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, the culture, the world, sees your body as something simply biological. It's just a matter of processes put together for your own consumption. So the false view of your body is that it was made for individual consumption. We should reject that. In fact, often in heresy, you'll find that the body is considered either evil or a, a, a non-matter issue, like it's neutral. And so use it however you want, but not in Christianity. The body is seen as something made in God's image, as something uh, glorious. The world would have you see it, though, as, as strictly biological. And I think that's what's going on in these quotes, especially the one that says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, can't we just use our bodies however we want because it's just a biological mass? Let me remind you that I think this seems to be especially true in regards to sexual issues. And perhaps that is why Paul uses sexual sin here as the primary sin in view here. You notice how he goes from this idea of food for the stomach and the stomach for food right to sexual immorality in the text, doesn't he? Like, that seemed like a jump to me. Like, wow, boom, we're suddenly talking about sexual immorality. But I think he's trying to say, hey, when it comes to sexual sin, your body's not just like a biological factory only. You can't just, you know, engage in all kinds of sexual sin because you can biologically. So while sexual sin is the primary sin in view here, Sexual sin isn't the only way we sin with our bodies, so understand that. And it's not the only sin that's concerning. But I would say this to you, based on what I think the text is teaching. It is one that physically demonstrates the idolatrous posture of autonomy more than others. Which may be what's behind the phrase, you sin against your own body in sexual sin. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But sexual sin does physically demonstrate this myth of autonomy more than most sins. Let me explain further. I'll repeat myself a minute. Paul uses the food in the stomach to illustrate the wrong way to think about your body and sexual issues. It's not just a biological matter. This is not just a utilitarian tool we've been given. When we think that way, we will see our bodies as it's merely that, as utilitarian, a tool meant for your individual satisfaction and consumption. And you'll see others in that way as well as expendable, utilitarian. They're just there for the taking. When you see your body this way, as something only meant to satisfy your appetites, as a utilitarian tool, as a consumptive device, then we are relegating it to something that was not intended by God. When we think we're autonomous and in full ownership of our body, and that we can use it however we wish, we will find ourselves sinning more, not less. Let me give you two examples. The sin of pornography. Think about the sexual sin for a moment. It is dehumanizing, demoralizing, and in one sense we think it's deifying. But it always destructs the body and it never constructs or edifies the body. When men and women turn to porn as a way to wrongfully satisfy sexual cravings, all we're doing is exhibiting a consumptionist attitude. It's an autonomous posture that says, my body's needs in this moment matter more than anyone else. 
So porn dehumanizes people. It idolizes oneself. In fact, I would say this to you. The sexual sin of pornography dehumanizes one person, the other person, and deifies yourself. That your body matters most. You're taking full autonomy to please it at all costs. You think like, there's some kind of deity. Like, you're in control, and, and you're not. God actually owns your body. But then you dehumanize another body for your own pleasure. You can say it like this. We dehumanize one person while we idolize ourselves. That's pornography. And so we click, we engage, we watch, thinking that we're meeting our needs, but actually what we're doing is we're destroying our bodies. You see, pornography is a trap. What we think will actually satisfy our body actually begins to destroy it. Here's how. Because pornography is both parasitic and cannibalistic. It eats away at your sense of God's image stamped on you, what we call the imago Dei. It's Latin for image of God. Pornography eats away at your understanding of it, and it eats away at your understanding and sense of it in someone else. And so when pornography is just part of your life, whether in the movies you watch, the websites you visit, the printed page, whatever medium or however you access it, when it's part of your life, you are gradually and slowly dehumanizing, demoralizing, diminishing the image of God stamped on yourself and others. And you're not even aware of it because in the moment you think, hey, I'm in full control. I'm getting what I like in the moment, but it's actually parasitic. It's eating away at your sense of God's image and it's cannibalistic. It's eating away at other self uh, image, the God's image in them. You see, pornography is a sure sign one is thinking autonomously, not autonomously. This is what's so odd about the porn industry. It seems to say to us that they magnify the body. But the truth is they're actually dehumanizing it and destroying it, and they're utilizing it for their own immediate needs. They see it as strictly biological and utilitarian. They think, it's at my disposal. I'm the owner of it. I'll use it however I want. And it's sinful. I just finished reading this week the book, The Porn Problem. I'd encourage every person to pick it up, men and women. You can read it in a day or probably an hour. It's not very long, but it's very helpful. Um, I'd encourage you, if you know that this is something you are struggling with, and reach out to our church. We have a group for men and a group for women, and there should be no shame in saying, hey, I, I want to go to that group and get some help. You know, pornography is an epidemic, and not just in our culture, in the church. I'll bring some more stats to you as the weeks unfold, but we're not immune. And attacking pornography must start with understanding who you belong to and how he views your body. He does not view your body as simply some sexual, biological device or tool that can meet your needs or someone else's needs just because you can in the moment. At the root is an autonomous posture. And as long as you think you own your own body, you'll find yourself sinning more in ways like pornography. I think we see the same thing in the sin of abortion, which I believe is a sexual sin, by the way. You see, in my opinion, I think abortion 
is the darkest display of, of the autonomous posture. I mean, what is the mantra of those who proposed the legalized murder of children in the womb? It's my body. I mean, you see that on the signs. You hear it in their chants, don't you? It's my choice. Alyssa Milano said this a few months ago when she tweeted, I want my bodily autonomy back. Now, just as I say with pornography, and I'll say this with abortion, as your pastor, I want to warn you of these and preach against them and show you the Bible's view, but I love you. Our church leaders love you. And we hate sin, not you. If you find yourself caught in a struggle with either of these sins, and I'm just using examples of how autonomy shows up sexually, this is what Paul was talking about. The word sexual immorality is mentioned three times in this text. I want to say to you, don't run from the outstretched arms of your pastors and your leaders and your church who love you. I mean, we, we want to help. None of us are perfect. We all struggle with sin. We all have to deal with this sense that we belong to ourselves. We have to attack that at its root. And if you are struggling with a decision to abort, man, we will help you. We will. If you're struggling with pornography, we will help you. Both men and women, we have groups. I just want you to hear that while I'm adamant and passionate to stand for life without apology, I recognize there are people who've had abortions. There are those who may actually be struggling even at this moment with that decision. And I want you to hear the voice of your pastor saying, don't run from me. The truth is actually able to set us free. Amen. So hear, hear that in my voice. At the same time, I want it to be clear where our church stands and where we've always stood. We have always and always will stand for life. Children, we've said from day one, are a treasure from the Lord. And though we only see them initially when they're born, it's at conception that they are given life. And what I detest about those who push the agenda of abortion, the pro-death people, is that they've taken actually what God has designed to be a protection measure, the womb, and they've turned that into a tomb for many children. It should be the safe place. That's why I'm so thankful to so many of you for the way you politely but boldly are not ashamed to stand for the, for the unborn. And you give voice to those who have no voice. I thank God on a regular basis that he allowed our church to be part of the group that helped close the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Ankeny. I am. I think it was worth every minute of my time and your time to go and stand in front of that clinic and lovingly warn people that there are other options. There are better choices. I'm thankful for Agape Pregnancy Center in Des Moines. You know, the Simpsons are here these last few weeks, and I don't see them yet. David and his wife right back there, she runs that center. We partner with Alpha Women's Center here in Ankeny. In fact, January 19th is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And you're going to be given another baby bottle. Do you know that? I want you to take the bottle and fill it with change. Now, I know you could write a check for more than the change in the bottle. I get that. Do both. Put it on your kitchen counter. Let your kids put change in it and remind them of the value of babies and children. And then write a big check for it too. My point is not that we, that 
It's the change of the Bible. My point is the visibility of saying kids matter, children are precious, life begins at conception, and we will always stand for that. And abortion is one of those sins that, that seems to put on display in the darkest, darkest way this myth that we own our bodies. But God's word says we don't. That we're not autonomous. We are instead, what church? Say it with me. Bautonomous. Quite frankly, this autonomous posture, this myth, it's really the root of all the other sexual sins that our society is seeking to normalize. As our culture continues to unravel God's absolutes on sexual matters, we are seeing in our day what Paul saw in his day. And he specifically mentioned this in Romans 1.28. Listen to this verse. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so when you try to rid yourself of God's authority, you're left to your own autonomy, and the end of autonomy is destruction. This is why it's a myth. It's not the road to happiness. It's not the road to eternal life. It's the road to destruction. And truly, autonomy is the root of sexual sin, and I would say all sin that is so pervasive in our society. Seeing ourselves and our appetites as supreme and God's glory as secondary. This leads to dysfunction, destruction, debauchery. We cannot elevate ourselves above God's glory and think sin will not extend its stranglehold on us. We were made for God's glory, not our own. And to switch this is to severely suffocate any hope for the kind of life that lasts eternally. Truly, when a culture lives out of Romans 1 posture of autonomy, it will be to its own destruction. Why? I go back to this point. Because the body and sex are not like the food and stomach. They're not just neutral matters. They're not just biological masses. They're not just things for your individual consumption. The body's not your personal bully to to use to get whatever you want, especially sexually. Your body is God's. And when we assume that we're the owners and not God, we start down the road of sin that in, in many ways is often irrevocable. So what is the proper view of the body? Well, he tells us that, fortunately. He doesn't leave us wondering, like, man, what do we do now? Notice in verses 13 and 14. What he says is the proper view of the body. Would you? He starts in the middle of 13. He says, The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he continues by saying this, And God who raised the Lord will also raise us up. I think by implication he's saying your body, He'll raise us up by His power. Here's the two purposes of your body, which I think we could categorically use this phrase, divine glorification, as its true purpose. That your body is not a, a mere collection of biological processes. It's not this neutral matter. It's actually stamped with God's image and it's made for His glory, but in two ways especially. His residence and your resurrection. I think this is what's meant by the phrase that your body's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. How is the Lord for the body? By His Holy Spirit, He inhabits you in the current moment. Those who are his children, he inhabits your actual body in his spirit. And then he says, and by the way, when your body decays and goes to the ground, he will raise that body by the same power he raised Christ's body. So he talks about resurrection. So here are two ways that God intends to use your body to bring glory to his name. 
by residing in you and by resurrecting you. One is in the current, one is in the future. He calls your body a temple. So he's residing in you currently. He'll raise you one day and you'll join others in the perfect temple, Christ's presence to worship. Because in both cases, what is a temple used for? A temple is designed for worship. Your body was made to worship God. That's why the Holy Spirit is in you. So in every physical thing you're doing, it's designed to bring glory to God. Glory is the word for, for weight. It means it's, it's doxa. It means that you're, you're ascribing uh, brilliance and importance and, and weight to something. So when you bring glory to God, what you're doing is you're bringing weight to God. You're casting incredible prominence and importance and priority to God. He says here, we should do that, verse 20, with our, say it church, body. Your body's far more than just a collection of biological processes. Your body's stamped with God's image and is made not to sin, but man, to see Christ and glorify Him and bring weight to Him. This is why you have a body. I think this raises the importance of our body exponentially. It demands we have a vertical and theological understanding of the body, not just a worldly cultural one. And when we gain that kind of understanding from the scriptures, we will begin to sin less because we'll realize the importance and beauty and blessing of the body. It is from God, and yet it is for God. It's not just for our individual consumption. It's for divine glorification both now and later and it's all by God's power now lest you think that this means well I guess sex is out of the picture then I'm glad to report to you it doesn't mean that because rightly understood and used sex between a man and a woman is one of the deepest forms of worship Sex between a man and a woman in marital covenant, biblical intimacy, is one of the deepest forms of worship. Why do you say that, Todd? Why are you making us nervous now suddenly? Because you may think, well, if the body's meant for divine glorification, if the Spirit resides in us and He's going to resurrect us, if, if it's all really for God's glory, then I guess we've got to always do spiritual things. We've got to avoid anything. That's, Paul's not making that point at all. The phrase he talks about is sexual immorality, but I would remind you, that Paul uses sexual intimacy to actually describe the depth of love that Christ has for his church. Ephesians 5. He even says this. He says that when he explains how a man and a woman will leave their father and mother and cleave unto each other and they'll be one flesh, he says, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. This is a profound mystery. Paul is admitting, I think, in some kind of inspired way, I can't fully explain how intercourse between a man and a woman depicts in the deepest way Christ's union with his church, but it does. It's a profound mystery. So I'm saying to you, married couples, your body is a beautiful blessing from God for God, and one of the ways that you are able to bless your partner is in the act of sexual intercourse. And likewise to our single people here, don't misuse and damage that beautiful gift through intercourse before the marital covenant. Purity before your marriage will be a blessing after your marriage. So I would encourage you, this does not mean that suddenly your physical body can't be used in sexual ways. It can 
in accordance with God's boundaries. After all, he owns the body. He sets the guidelines. This is proof positive that the body is a beautiful blessing from God. It's for God. And we bring weight to his name when even in things like sexual intercourse and intimacy in the marital covenant with our spouse, we show this is how Christ loves his church. So church, are you hearing me? Your body's not a bad thing. Now sin does reside in our body, I admit that. We fight the body of, of death, Paul called it. It is decaying, lusts are strong. But we have the power of Christ, and as I'll speak next week about union with Christ and how it helps us overcome sin, I'm simply saying to you that inherently when God made your body, he stamped his image on it. And yes, it's been marred by sin, but it's not owned by sin. God owns you. And he wants your body to be a blessing, a beautiful blessing for him. And we do that by using our physical things, our body, in ways that bring weight to his name. This is why 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 31 should mean a lot to you. Because we say this verse, and I think sometimes we say it so glibly we don't get it, but here's what Paul said. In this same book, a few chapters later, he said, whether therefore you eat, it's a physical thing we do, right? Or drink, it's a physical thing we do. And then he says, or whatever you do. So he's talking about physical things, whether it's work, relationships, hobbies, washing dishes, mowing the grass, uh, sexual relationships with your spouse. In other words, whatever physical thing you're doing, do all to the glory of God. Why? Because your body was made to do exactly that. Bring weight to God. And that will only happen when you reject autonomy and embrace autonomy. The contrast could not be clearer. A consumptionist, autonomous view of the body is a false perspective of the body. It's strictly horizontal. It's just individual. It's biological. And it will end in destruction. But a Christ-centered, biblically rooted, autonomous view of the body is a true perspective. It's vertical and theological, and the end of that is resurrection. And with your body for eternity, you will worship God. So, how about this week? We live like our body belongs to God because it does. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'll take 40 minutes and then we get to the end and it's just the plain truth and you know I'm already there, right? But this is really what we're saying this week. Live like your body belongs to God because it actually does. He purchased you with the price of, of His Son's blood. You have bought autonomy not autonomy. And like I said, that's some hard medicine. But I would encourage you to open wide and drink every bit of it. Reject the culture, the world. Reject Satan's destructive myth that you belong to yourself. You're self-made. You're your own boss. No, you are not, and neither am I. We belong to God. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And just this week, I think I regained a new understanding of, of what my father always meant when he would say to me, you don't have any rights. <laughs> now, when I was 10, I understood that from one angle, okay? And you're watching this, Dad, so I think you'll get a kick out of this. 
But he would say, you don't have any rights. And I would struggle with that. As I got older, I could drive. I graduated. I kind of got my own job, moved out. But, but I'd hear him say, hey, we don't have any rights. And I often wondered what he meant. And then I grew and I understood, okay, he just means that, you know, that God calls the shots. And, and I think that's true, don't get me wrong. But just this week, in rereading 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, these final nine verses, and, and understanding Baltonomy, I realize my dad is exactly right. That I don't like hearing that, and I don't think you do either, but the biblical truth is you don't have any rights. God has them all. We are a Baltonomous people, and our bodies are His, not ours. This is the root of every sin in your life. And if you want to sin less in 2020, for God's glory, not your own, by His power, not your own, attack the root. Attack autonomy. And live beautifully in autonomy. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.